Welcome to Yolitix, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey, welcome back to uh, Yolitix here. Let's talk to Wheeler right out of the gate about these Mavs tickets you've been getting, man. The Yolitix suite has been taken, so I don't know where you're getting these tickets. Well, the problem with that is, is that uh, I think that I have not brought them very good luck. <laughs> it's not going well in this series so far. Uh, they've got, uh, I mean, it's going to be do or die time here now. Yeah, maybe you stop going. Maybe we'll start winning. Bro. I think uh, Rockets and Spurs fans here in Texas are going to love to hear this conversation. <laughs> Seriously though, man, I'm impressed. Uh, I didn't know you were uh, of means. I have. Like no, I'm not. I I am of means. I have friends in good places. Evidently, that's so, really yeah. it. I mean, it's it's all just a matter of who do you network with? Because uh, no, I I can't pull anything off. And, and speaking of of who you know, we now know somebody. The guest we're about to have on this podcast here, who is really in high places. Yeah, a Texan really in high places. And it is incredible uh, what she has been looking into, and what she has found, and what she and others have found that other people kind of wanted to keep a big secret uh, after mm-hmm. they found it. Uh, so we're about to dive in. I should ask you, what are you drinking first, though? Yeah, you, you keep holding the beer up on the Zoom here. You want to start drinking before we even start talking. I'm ready. Here, man. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I come yeah. prepared and, and, and ready to go, Jace. Um, it's I am 7.30 having, in the morning, but go ahead. I, what are you having at 7.30? Here? I'm having one of these, and I've never done this. I don't think I've done this. One of these Shiner S'mores. Have you had that? <laughs> no. Dude, what's up with you with, like, fruit beers? Listen, and, and, no, 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 and no. These, like, Listen here. Beers. This is Shiner Bach, okay? And it has a little thing on the can. I guess this is what sold me. I don't know what it was I was thinking about. It says made with real Texas chocolate, too. So, I mean. Is there such a thing? I didn't know there was such a thing. Apparently there is, according to Shiner. But I don't know. Maybe this. Maybe I had a sweet tooth when I went through the store that day. Chocolate and marshmallow ale. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Crack this open. I want to know how this tastes. It's sounding like a bad idea right now. I think I I had more of a sweet tooth when I got it. Go ahead. Tell, tell us about this one. Man. I feel like I, could, I should put a straw down into this one, you know. And uh, really, <laughs> yeah, it tastes like a beer mixed what, with s'mores. I mean, you know, I, I like beer and I like chocolate. I don't know if I want to have them together, though. Well, just you know, combine things that you like, Jason. Uh, what are you having? <laughs> I'm having a uh, an Oktoberfest. Oh, yeah. Uh, seasonal. Obviously, the end of season, as we are in May now. (laughs) It hasn't been in the refrigerator for for months. I just got this recently. Okay, so so, but it's been in the cooler at the store for months. It's it's probably been there for months. It's okay, well-aged, well-aged. Yeah, let's see see if it still tastes well, though. Ah, yes, no s'mores. It's delicious. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm having real aftertastes now of that real Texas chocolate that's in this mm, beer. Um, This is uh, Wild Acre Brewing Company, which is over in Fort Worth. They always make uh, good beer as well, too. We need to get some more beer, like from Houston, Austin, Valley, West Texas. I'm going to put that on our to-do list right now, okay? Top of our to-do list. That and uh, try to get the Mavs to win at least one game to to make this respectable, at least, uh, (laughs) in this uh, Western Conference uh, Finals. Um, Let's get to our guest here. So, yeah, this is a big deal, um, uh, you know, that she's been a part of here. And, you know, there have been a lot of developments here just lately. I mean, um, you know, when you think about countries around the world and you think, you know, which countries are kind of like Texas, one that always comes to mind is Australia. And I think we actually have some listeners in Australia. Uh, at least we've seen them pop up over the years. 
Australia just had elections and they called it the green slide instead of the landslide um, because uh, they chose a government that is expected to be much, much, much more focused on climate change. The, apparently, climate change has really percolated to the top of, uh, of mind there for Australian voters. Uh, and, and so this, of course, is a problem that goes on all around the world. Uh, it's something we're all going to have to contend with. It's something we're, we're already dealing with uh, here in Texas. That's been shown over and over again. Our days are getting hotter. Our nights are getting hotter. That's uh, been out in a report. Uh, the, the coastal waters are coming in uh, a little bit more. And we all know about electricity, Jason. And it seems like, uh. I mean, I've lived here. You know, I, I grew up here. I was born here. I've worked here many years. I never during that stretch remember that, you know, when we get into summer and it starts to get a little bit hot, we're not even in summer yet, but it starts to get a little bit hot and they start saying, okay, everybody turn your thermostats up to 78 degrees. We, we don't want the power grid to fail. You know, all of this stuff is interconnected and you start thinking, what are we going to do when days get significantly hotter? You know, how are we going to handle this? Yeah, we just had a conservation watch for electricity over the weekend, didn't mm -hmm. we, from ERCOT, the uh, the operator of the Texas grid? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how that is not going to be a political issue in this state in November. If we are in, in, in May here, mid to late May, and we're having these these issues with, with the grid when when you know people have to to turn up their air conditioners that that's that's phenomenal to me. But it is all tied together, and this may be our our uh, our farthest away guest we've ever interviewed. Uh, it would is be. It? I. It, it's a close one no, between her close. and Byron right. Harris. That time when he was down down in the Southern Sea. Yeah, effort. We, we've talked to folks in Ukraine too, so that, that's oh, a little yeah. farther. Uh, but, but she's have, she's way out there though. She. she uh, who is way out there? Uh, this this guest we're about to have on here, she's out, out in the Alps. Oh, okay, yeah. I, when you said way out there, I was like, what, what are you talking about? No, no, no. Oh. <laughs> not, not figuratively, <laughs> literally. She's, she's way out there. She's uh, close to the French Alps. So we have Dr. Camille Parmesan uh, on with us. She is an ecologist at UT Austin. But, you know, starting out this conversation about who you know, she is also on the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, for the United Nations. Not only is she on this panel with scientists from all around the world, but she also wrote the most recent report on climate change, and it was a doozy. Uh, it essentially, uh, you have these scientists telling government officials, hey, this is where we are right now, and this is what's coming. The, politics aside, this is what things look like. If you look at the, tra the trajectory of where we are. Well, it's interesting that you say politics aside, because, you know, they get political pressure, though, even though yeah. they're just there looking at charts and crunching numbers and doing math, straight math. And yet when it's all put together and she's going to talk to us a little bit about this. And that's a, it's a really touchy area. But when they get it all put together, some of the governments uh, who are, you know, involved in, in looking at this and signing off on this are like, do we have to put all of that data in there. We kind of rather that you didn't tell everybody about that specifically. Yeah, clearly some governments didn't want the specific numbers out there. Uh, but as we were setting this call up and, and just before we uh, actually started recording here, she was talking about how uh, politics is actually the answer to all of this. Uh, despite some governments around the world not wanting to put specific numbers in there, which show how bad things are. Uh, so we reached out and got Dr. Camille Parmesan on the line where she lives right now, even though she works for UT in Austin. She lives in France. 
Uh, welcome to the podcast, Professor Parmesan. We are thrilled to have you. Uh, this is an extraordinary report that you helped to put together. Uh, 270 researchers working on this from 67 different countries. Uh, this is, it's comprehensive, it's alarming. Um, my first question to you though is how do you get chosen to be a part of something this huge? That's a, a very good question. You have to be nominated by your government. So, so it's the governments that choose the authors that are going to be in. And, and of course, the IPCC board is looking for diversity, um, ethnic diversity, geographic diversity, you know, men and women, et cetera. So there, within those boundaries, though, it's, it's how do you get the attention of your government? Hmm. This round is the first time I've taken on um, the major responsibility of being head of chapter, a coordinating lead author. And I can tell you that was a lot more work <laughs> than being a lead author. Well, for people who, who might not know IPCC, it's the Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change. The United Nations convenes this. And the latest report came out, I believe, in February, which which you uh, uh, led on that. You just mentioned there, Dr. Parmesan. For people who have not seen this report, who might have missed the news coverage, it made international news. How bad is it? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a doom and gloom person. I'm an optimistic person. I enjoy life. And so I really uh, try to be very straightforward in my own research. And I was very pleased that in this IPCC round, really all of the scientists were just saying, look, we need to just get the message out clearly as to what's happening and what we think is going to happen in the next 20, 50, 100 years and being very straightforward about it. And that really is all we did. We weren't trying to be doom and gloom. We weren't trying to exaggerate. It was very factual. These are the numbers. This is what we're seeing. This is what we're predicting we will see over the next 100 years. And the trouble is the numbers are now so scary that that ended up sounding as though we were being alarmist. And during the approval session, I, I won't go into details because it's, it's meant to be a closed session, but I can tell you, we did get pushback from, from governments who said, well, aren't you just being alarmist? And our response is, these are the numbers. The, the, you know, you can interpret them however you want. If you're interpreting them as being really scary, that's, you know, that's okay. Um, but what we're doing is telling you, this is what we found. And this is what the science supports. And, and that's... Uh, very different from our intending to be alarmist, right? It's just that that's where we're at right now. It is a very scary place. You know, if I can sort of take my IPCC hat off and as a scientist and as a person, I, as a scientist, I was alarmed at the kind of numbers we were pulling together. So it's, uh, what is happening is happening faster. It's happening, we're getting more impacts at an earlier stage than we in the field expected by even five years ago. Mm. So it, yes, it's alarming, but that's what's happening. I think that makes me feel even worse. The fact that you went in trying to not be alarmed or alarmist yeah. and the data itself 
is alarming and alarmist. It, it, it yeah. just comes through that way. Uh, I'm curious when you're looking at this at such a micro level and a macro level, you know, when you're doing the research on this, because most people are going about their lives, they see some changes here and there. Um, but I think a lot of people think of climate change as something that's still off in the distance, you know, maybe a couple of decades or a couple of years away. This is something that you're seeing happening in real time right now. It's happening. It's already here. Oh, absolutely. And people actually are seeing it. They're just not relating it to anthropogenic climate change. So the huge freeze in Texas that happened, what was it, two or three years ago? You know, the big freeze in February that uh, uh, crashed mm -hmm. all the electric lines, you know, people's pipes were breaking right and left and everyone was saying, what is this? You know, this doesn't happen in Texas. This is, uh, we're not prepared for this, etc. Well, that type of event is something that climate scientists predicted 25 years ago. When I was talking to them mm -hmm. as, as a biologist, I'd get them and say, okay, look, I'm going to start going to your meetings. I need to get up to speed on this. And they would just say, oh, yeah, we're going to have polar excursions. And I'm like, what, 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 what is that? What's a polar excursion? What are you talking about? Um, and they very quickly said, well, this is why we don't want to call it global warming. We want to call it climate change because what we expect to happen. And remember, this had not yet happened. But just from basic principles, from the modeling work they were doing, they were expecting the polar vortex around around the Arctic is is normally has been very stable keeps all that super cold air right up around the arctic and top of the arctic ocean they were expecting anthropogenic climate change increase in greenhouse gases to destabilize that vortex which means that mm. boom that super cold air can start going way down and they predicted super freezes in the southern usa especially mm. texas because we tend to get this big you know lip straight down from from the Arctic. Um, and then it started happening a few years ago. You started seeing it in the Northeast. Uh, it happened in Illinois. I've, we've got family in Illinois and they had this horrible winter. I think it was about seven years ago. And I said, look, this is climate change. And then it happens in Texas. And it's like, you are being impacted by climate change. You're just not recognizing it for what it is. I don't like using the word alarming or being an alarmist either, but, but the most concerning part of this to me um, is the fact that it's not just weather, it's not just freezes, not just rising sea levels, et cetera, but it's the impacts of that um, dwindling fresh water supplies, irreversible ecosystem damage. A third of all the known species could be uh, extinct. Um, I, I believe that I read that right too. Uh, farmland that will not grow food. The, the side effects of this, if you call them side effects, that's the concerning part to me. I feel like I could go find a, get under a tree or get in a cave and, and, and escape some of the things or go to high land and escape some things. But if there's nothing to eat, yeah. that's a problem. No, you're absolutely right. That is one of the biggest concerns for society as a whole. Uh, and we're already seeing food shortages that have been related to climate change. And it's kind of starting out to be uh, the worst impacts are where you've got small farmers who are just really subsistence farmers. Maybe they sell a little bit in the local market, but they don't have irrigation. They don't have a lot of capital, so they can't invest in the kind of tools that might help them get through droughts and, and floods. Mm. And so they're being impacted now, and that is largely happening across Africa, uh, some parts of Asia. 
but, you know, we are starting to see the big bread baskets being hit as well. And as I said, you know, we own farmland in Illinois. That's been the bread basket, not just of the USA, but of the world for quite some time. And increasingly, our farmers are saying, you know, I wasn't able to plant soybeans until, you know, something like it was May, I think, before they could plant. And they normally plant in early April because of the flooding. And, you know, this person's father had been farming and his grandfather. And he said, this has never happened in sort of our family history. We've never planted soybeans that late. Uh, you know, equivalently, they're not getting rains in the summer. The rains are coming fewer, more frequent and heavier. Whereas for growing corn, you want that nice steady, you know, rain every third day and then the sun comes out and you want that regularity. And what climate change, anthropogenic climate change is doing is it's taking that evenness, that regularity away. So extreme events are becoming more extreme, uh, more extreme, frequent extreme events. And that evenness of climate is going away. Everywhere is sort of getting more extreme. When I first moved to Britain 10 years ago, it shocked me because I, my husband is British and we had visited there for 30 years. And Britain is like drizzle, 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 hmm. 300 days of the year, right? That's hmm. British weather. Mm -hmm. And it never really rained hard. I mean, I'm from Texas. I know what a heavy rain is, these big tropical mm -hmm. thunderstorms. And they, they had no idea. They would call something heavy, and I'd say, this isn't heavy. They are now getting <laughs> genuinely heavy rainstorms. Hmm, and, wow. and they're getting enormous flooding because of it, because they're not prepared for it. Their whole society is not prepared for these very heavy rain events. So, yes, it, the impacts are worse than you might think from looking at the change in rainfall and the change in temperature. Because, hmm. you know, you say, okay, we have an increase in flood events, but what hits you is, you know, your friend's house has been washed down the stream, right? I mean, and, and that is literally what's happening around the world. Houses that have been there for 300 years along a riverbank are suddenly being washed away because the events are much stronger, much heavier. Well, you know, you say this is happening around the world and it includes familiar places. Uh, stop me if you've heard of this place because I was looking through your report and I, I saw some interesting takeaways in there that this could be especially impactful in places that are um, already exposed to high temperatures where crops and livestock are grown that have coastal areas, places that already experience severe drought where there's a potential for even more mass migration as people are moving to get rid of, uh, get away from climate change effects. All of that sounds exactly like Texas. This sounds like a place that could be greatly impacted by these changes. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, Texans, I think, feel a little bit out of it because, you know, Texas has always had extreme weather. We've always had really variable weather in Texas. And so people think, ah, we're used to it. And in the early phases of, of anthropogenic climate change, that was correct. It was very hard to see a signal in Texas because, you know, it's going like this all the time. The temperature, the, you know, precip, floods, droughts, it's normal in Texas. But now it's finally getting to the point where even in a place that's typically very variable, because that variability is suddenly swinging to sort of these record highs, record droughts, record floods, 
people are starting to notice it. And as I said, the big freeze that happened a couple of years ago was so out of bounds of anyone's memories that 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 is going to stick in people's minds for a while. And of course, in Texas, I keep telling people, our coast, where I lived in England was on a cliff that was 200 feet up. And I thought sea level rise is not a big problem here. The Texas coast is really low lying. I mean, a lot of Texas was under the sea relatively recently geologically. It's a very shallow, you know, gradient. So sea level rise and the increase in strength of hurricanes is already starting to slam Texas. And I worry about that because I feel like a lot of the coastal governments are not taking it seriously. Zooming out from Texas, though, I, I mean, I think of these extreme weather events and, you know, Hurricane Camille in 69 that hit the Mississippi coast. I think of the, the great Mississippi River flood back in 93 that just washed away towns in Illinois and Missouri and, and places like that. Um, it, it seems like these kind of have been around for a while. If I hear climate change and, you know, how bad things are now, yeah, the February freeze was was bad. But politically speaking, I know you've had to cross into politics with this policy. Um, a lot of Republicans just say that, that climate change is cyclical because we've seen this in, in millennia, you know, over, over, the, uh, over the millennia, rather. It, it, is that wrong? Yes, it's wrong. <laughs> the short answer is yes, that's wrong. And the, the longer answer is that what you have to do is look at the long term and look at the frequency of those extreme floods. Look at the frequency of those extreme hurricanes and the strength of those hurricanes. And you'll see that, yes, it goes up and down. Absolutely. As I said, in Texas, climate has always been very variable. But even with the ups and downs, you're starting to see a significant long-term trend, right? So, yes, we've always had floods. We've always had hurricanes. But the strength of those hurricanes is increasing. And that is, you know, um, scientifically uh, validated by many, many independent studies. Uh, we, yes, we've always had heat waves, but the drought heat wave that occurred in Texas, and I'm trying to remember the year, was it 2011, I think? Yeah, about um, 10 years ago. Uh, was off, off the charts. You know, you've got these lines of, you know, correlation between drought and heat wave over 100 years, and you see that year is just it's on its own, way off the, the trend line, and that has been linked to anthropogenic climate warming. So these very extreme events, very extreme years are becoming more extreme, and the extremes are happening more often. And that fact is linked to anthropogenic climate change. And so I, I get a little annoyed because actually this counter argument has been around 30 years and the data keep reinforcing what the scientists are saying we just keep getting more data showing that we're getting now very significant increases in in strength of droughts in frequency of droughts in strength of floods in frequency of floods in strengths of hurricanes uh, and that, that is in Texas as well as across the USA, as well as globally. So it's happening at every level now. And 
So, so what do you tell the what do you tell these people then who say, "Oh, come on, doctor, it's been happening forever. Just go back and look at the history books." I, what, you, you said it annoys you. What do you tell look them? Look at the data. And and when I give public talks, I show graphs. And you're always told, "Oh, never show a graph. The public can't handle it." But <laughs> I've gotten feedback by doing that. It's okay. Here are the actual data points over the last hundred years, the last thousand years, the last million years, whatever the data set is. And you see this trend, whatever time scale you're looking at, you see the trend. Mm. And I get people coming up to me afterwards saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a geologist, I, you know, I study long-term climate change, and, and I just thought this was, you know, people making a, a mountain out of a molehill, but you showed the data, and I'm so glad you did that, because now I'm going to you know, they'd often say, well, I'm not just going to believe you. And I'm like, fine, but would you please look at the data? Don't just look at, at some summary, um, you know, written by someone who doesn't have the expertise. Let me ask one other question before Wheeler pops in here. Have you seen the movie Don't Look Up, yes. Leonardo DiCaprio? Yes. Isn't that great? It is. I love it. <laughs> oh, it is a brilliant movie. And, and since it came out, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of us, several of our my colleagues, uh, as well as myself, have have come out of an interview or come out of a meeting and <laughs> right. said, I felt like I was in Don't Look Up. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. The climate change can bring jobs like the comet can bring jobs. Great. I, I, I hope that yeah. you don't Go feel ahead, that yeah. way after you leave this uh, interview. <laughs> Uh, right. So so you all put out this report in, in February just as the world completely turned away from looking at anything other than the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So it, terrible timing there, you know, as far as getting people's attention, because it seems like the world just turned its attentions there. And of course, one of the byproducts from that war was that we saw gas prices just soar. We saw oil prices soar. And, you know, here you are in this report, you know, trying to shake the world and go, hey, uh, we've got to reduce greenhouse gases. And people are clamoring to bring down the price per gallon and just saying, drill, baby, drill. Um, how do you break through the people, you know, people have the concerns about right now, today, you know, they're not thinking about the long-term impacts. They, they want the relief that they need today. How do you balance that? Yeah. And I totally understand that. I mean, I, you know, you, you just need to get back and forth to work. You just need to feed your family. I understand that. But I think one of the strengths of our report is we actually say that these sorts of shocks um, come because we're so reliant on fossil fuels. So if we had a better energy economy that was more diverse, that was more reliant on renewable energies, you'd have the energy coming more locally, right? So you'd have your, your, your solar plants and your wind, wind plants, et cetera, coming more from your own region so that you're not buying it from another country, for example. Uh, so it makes you more self-reliant. That's the big plus co-benefit of going towards the kind of society that is not only low carbon, but ends up being more resilient in many, many, many different ways. Food production, going from big industrial food production where a single crop is grown over many, many, many square miles to where you have diverse crops that are used more locally, um, not shipped, you know, again, around the world. And that can't be done everywhere, but it certainly can be done in a lot of places. 
that makes that local economy, that country, more self-reliant. The diversity of crops is more resilient to these increases in extreme droughts and extreme floods because one crop may fail, but then another crop will be okay. So you tend to not lose everything. Whereas when you have these huge, big industrial fields of one single crop, if that crop can't handle that particular drought, you've lost everything. And then the global market, you know, slides. So the kind of society that we, um, the, the pathway that we develop towards a climate resilient society is actually has enormous benefits for handling shocks of all kinds, including these sorts of, of you know, it, shocks from one country invading another when that country has to, happens to be a breadbasket and when the invader happens to be a major source of energy, mm-hmm. right? You've got those two combining with, with the invasion of Ukraine. And if we shifted towards the kind of society that is one of the pathways we develop as climate resilient pathways, those same events would not have as big a global impact. But you say, you know, that you're an optimist. How optimistic are you here? I mean, we know what the political climate is right now in the United States, in Texas, for that matter. Uh, people can't agree on anything. Uh, you're in France right now uh, talking to us from France. They've got, you know, they, they've been going through this contentious election. Um how do you get governments around the world, not just in states and countries, but around the world to get together on this? Because that's basically what this whole report says is, hey, y'all are all going to have to actually do this and stop t- just talking about it. Yeah, and uh, that's a very good point. And, and that's the most worrying point. And what I try, again, when I give public lectures, what I try to tell people is the governments will do what they think the people want them to do. Mm. Right. They want to be voted in. They want to be in power. And I think individual people feel powerless. And it's like, no, you've got all the power. Don't you understand? As a voting public, you have the power to change this. And so I think the kind of um, the kind of movements that the young people are doing, uh, you know, whether you agree with their tactics or not, they're very committed and they're very impassioned. And, and that's what gives me hope, and that's what gives me optimism for the future, because they, as I, well, when I talk to them, I say, well, you need to become the next leaders. And, you know, often their first thing is, oh, God, be, you know, go into politics? It's like, <laughs> look, you want to change the world, go into politics, you know. Um, Did you ever see yourself it, jumping into the politics of this stuff? I mean, you were a biologist, you know, uh, you were out there studying butterflies. It sounds peaceful. Um, did you ever see yourself giving presentations at the White House or on the Hill or you know, really getting into the thick of this? Well, it wasn't that hard as a shift because I've stayed a scientist. I, I haven't really jumped into being a politician. I haven't jumped. I advise politicians and as a scientist, and I'm very, very comfortable with my role as a scientist, and I'm comfortable with talking to politicians of, of all walks. I mean, I... I don't, you know, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican or, or Green Party or Libertarian. I'll talk to you, right? I'm perfectly happy because the science is so strong. You don't, you don't, it doesn't really at this stage, 
all you need are the numbers. And if, if, if I can convince them that those numbers are solid and independently validated, and these are not cherry picked, which you know, in the IPCC port, we've been very, very careful not, not to do that. So it, if, as, as long as they trust the integrity of the scientist in the report, then all you have to do is show them the numbers. And I will, I, I have to be a little careful because the approval session is closed, but I'll say this much, that there are governments that wanted the numbers out. Right? And we clicked pretty quickly. So they, they were fine with the text, but they wanted like all the numbers taken out. It's like, no, that's mm. our strength. That, Why would you do a report with no numbers? Yeah, uh, right, right. That's nuts. If, if you, because of politics. Exactly. If you don't want people to pay attention, you take the numbers out, and then it's like, well, what does that mean? Right. What does it mean that right. we shouldn't have overshoot? There's no, there's no data there, so mm. we can just ignore it. And I think, really, when you get people to step away – not not have them in their political chamber get them on their own and and i've done this sort of quietly where no one's looking at them no no reporters no right and you say look you know this is what's happening a b c leads to d and that's those are the facts they will relent they're like okay yeah all right you're right i i you know you've got the numbers you're right but, you know, I've got to argue against it because my constituents. And then that comes back to they will do what they think their constituents want them to do. Mm. So we don't, in a sense, we don't have to convince the politicians. We have to convince the public, mm. which is why I spend so much time in public outreach. And right now I've got a postdoc working on educational methodologies, teaching five-year-olds about climate change. And the teacher said, you can't do that. That's, and they are learning and they're good and they get it. They get it better than their parents because they have no, they have no inhibitions about right. taking this in. They have no agenda. They have no politics. They're five mm. years old and they, they can repeat the carbon cycle and the water cycle and why we're changing that. Mm. A five-year-old. Dr. Parmesan, my last question for you is, since you helped put this most recent report together uh, for the, the UN panel there, ha have you changed anything that you do? Because uh, clearly, I guess you're still flying to France from Texas. Um, well, I haven't in a long time. Has your time. changed <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so I, I, since uh, it's, I did go at Christmas, this last Christmas, but I hadn't gone for three years. Um, yes, it has changed. So I... <laughs> I was invited, you know, most of the meetings have been virtual because of the pandemic. Right. But they've started being in person now. And I was invited to a meeting in London by the Royal Society just a couple of weeks ago. And I said, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this virtually because it was mixed in person and virtual. And then I saw some of my friends going in person and I was like, I'm a climate scientist. I, you know, I, I really can't do this. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I think much harder about doing something in person. And unfortunately, there are times when you have to meet in person. I mean, there are just some 
when you have very contentious issues and very divisive issues, it really is best to hash it out in person. It, it's calmer. You, you can calm people down. You can get your point across better. It's, it's much harder to do that virtually. So we'll still have to have in-person meetings. But I've been giving all of my seminars, you know, my invited seminars, all of them have been virtual. And it's, you know, not quite as good as in person. But yeah, I have been thinking about my own carbon budget a lot more, I think, than before we put these numbers together that are, as I said, very convincing. I've got one more on that same note for you. Uh, You know, I think the average person, like you said, feels kind of overwhelmed by all of this. They don't know what to do. It seems like a problem that's way too big for me as an individual to solve. You all put out this uh, amazing report that's 3,675 pages long. I mean, it's obviously a big problem. Uh, one, what two, does the what does one person do other than vote? You know, you've talked a lot about that. What does one person do? Does it matter to make those little adjustments in your life just as one individual in all of this? Oh, absolutely. Because it's one plus one equals two. Right. I mean, it starts with what individuals are doing. There, sure, there are some things that have to be done at the kind of global international agreement scale, of course. But, you know. <laughs> I did. And, oh, my family is not going to like me for this. In my own family, I'm trying to get them to get rid of their Suburbans and their, you know, their huge pickup trucks. It's like you live in Houston. You do not need an enormous four-wheel drive pickup truck. And and I'll loan them my Prius, and you know, and and they they they're astonished at the mileage. But then they're like, well. But it's so small. It's like, well, in Europe, actually, it's a big car. It's all relative. It's all relative. I can do anything you do in that pickup. I can do in the Prius, except maybe, you know, put a cattle cow in the back. So you really are trying to change hearts and minds out there. People you've never met and people in your own family. Professor, I, I think uh, Jason Whiteley fell off. Maybe he decided to save a little bit of electricity and turn his computer off early here uh, in the middle of this interview. You inspired him, I think. Uh, so I'll do the, the goodbyes here. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to do this uh, with us. Uh, a Longhorn way out there in, uh, in France uh, speaking to us today. Uh, we really appreciate this. Oh, I appreciate your having me. So Camille Parmesan there, Dr. Camille Parmesan there from from UT Austin, some startling stuff. Jason, it's always great to be taken behind the scenes and and to know what really goes in. I mean, this report is voluminous. It's huge. But, you know, we get the takeaways from her and I like how she can boil that down. And it's interesting how, you know, we always think of climate change as this real big thing. She brings it all the way down to Texas level so that we can start seeing like, this is real, this is happening. And I love that she made the point because remember when everybody used to call it global warming and people would go, but winter is cold now. We've had the coldest winter. Interesting how she was talking about how years ago, these same people doing these climate reports for the UN said they predicted that we were going to have this Arctic spill that comes all the way down to Texas and just puts Texas into an incredible deep freeze. And what happened last year? That's what happened. And that's where the electric grid miserably failed uh, here in this state and almost totally collapsed. Uh, And they predicted it years ago and they predicted that it will happen again. So so many people want to politicize science. 
science. Um, and I understand the politics behind politicizing it. But at the end of the day, these are numbers. These are hard facts. You can see where things were and where things are now. And you can make a logical conclusion that they will be, uh, you know, uh, uh, look differently in the future based on how they looked in the past and how they look now. That That's why, you know, reading this report, hearing from her directly, glad she took her call in France, uh, is it, just mm. is, is fascinating to me because you can pull the politics out of it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so we decided also to loop into this conversation, a guy who's been on the podcast with us before, in fact, talking about climate change. I think that he is one of the foremost reporters in the area of climate change, certainly in Texas, uh, but maybe in this country even. His name is David Schechter. He is uh, one of our colleagues who works at WFAA in Dallas. Uh, he's done some some amazing work going out and really getting down into the weeds uh, about you know exactly what we're seeing with climate change. And he's got two new ones uh, that are out uh, right now. He's uh, doing a whole piece on Tornado Alley and how it looks like that may be shifting a little bit. He's also doing a whole piece on methane, which if you pay attention to climate science, methane is the, the real boogeyman uh, here. And so he's, he's getting into that as well. Uh, and David is on the line with us once again. We've uh, asked him to, uh, he's got a full plate, but we've asked him to put a little bit more on it and uh, talk to us about uh, some of these things that he's got going on right now. What's your title, David? I mean, you're the, you're the climate reporter at WFAA. You're, you're the uh, one of the best reporters on staff uh, at WFAA. Assistant course, janitor is my... Is Stop it, man. You, you have one <laughs> you of do the it best all. offices. You have one of the best offices. You have like all these windows around you. I'm, I'm in the back by the, uh, the racks. But... Um, hey, you just heard the conversation uh, we had with uh, Dr. Parmesan. Um, well, first reaction to it, what, what do you think? Because she, she, she didn't weigh into politics. I tried to drag her into it a little bit, and she didn't weigh into it. Uh, that's common. I think um, scientists, most scientists don't talk, some do, but most don't talk about the politics of it because it has a tendency to um, maybe cloud up what you're trying to say. But she did hit on the, on the point that politics, and I agree, is the answer that uh, that this problem will not be solved without people voting for politicians? It, you know, if your issue is climate change, you should be voting for politicians whose issue is also climate change, because that's the only way I think you get out of this problem. Uh, David, uh, I think that a lot of people may have never heard of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, even though they've put out like six reports on this now uh, over the years. And they are considered the gold standard with this. Uh, you know, you, you've looked over their work. What are your thoughts? I mean, I it's a terrible brand name, right? The IPCC. So like they need some work on the branding. But the the, the science that they do is amazing. And I understand people like they eyes glaze over with science. And so maybe they don't want to hear about it. But the, the work they do, the fact that she's part of, I don't know, 200 some scientists from 67. I don't know those numbers exactly right. But and then every country is nominating scientists to be on this board. Every country then is approving the reports before they come out. So you have politics, you have science together. But the, the, the quality of the work is unbelievably good. And I've done a lot of reporting about science. My opinion is I've not seen a topic as studied as climate change, and the consensus is about the same as the fact that there's gravity. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's just it's a slam dunk, and it's cool for you to have had her on your show because she's in there doing the work. 
Hey, let me take our, our uh, listeners back to a, a story you did. I think it was last fall for WFAA. And you, you talked about, uh, you know, at best, and you looked specifically at uh, the Houston area and the Space Center Houston as an example, uh, a destination that's, you know, that we've all been to. And you said at best in 100 years, there'll be water in the parking lot. At worst, there'll be water in the buildings because of sea level rise and Galveston Bay is just going to, to, to spill over uh, into all those communities around there. That really put it in perspective for me. You know, it's if we it's true if we do absolutely our best so this is like to, to her work this is a press release that came out from the ipcc that she wrote the world faces unavoidable multiple climate hazards like the water coming into the parking lot at space center houston over the next two decades if we keep global warming to 1.5 degrees celsius which is like 2.7 degrees fahrenheit what we're seeing in that parking lot that's even temporarily exceeding this warming level will result in additional severe impacts, some which will be un, which will be irreversible. Mm-hmm. And so you, you know, the things that are happening now, some of them we can't undo them, or mm-hmm. in the in the case of the sea level rising, can't undo them in human time. Mm-hmm. The sea will could eventually come back down over thousands of years, but it's pretty much what we've got and what our kids got and what our grandkids got. So. Um, for them to write those kinds of sentences and to be that declarative about it, that's the importance of her work. And again, they base their things on numbers. It's not just a, a guess that they're making out of the air. Uh, David, in your previous reporting, you've also, you know, we keep talking about decades and, you know, down the road and this could happen and that could happen. Y- your previous work has shown here in Texas in real time, this is happening. We are seeing changes now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all over the place if you just kind of change your lens a little bit so we have the sea level rise in the gulf you have worse experiencing now extreme drought we've had like she talked about 2011 the worst drought we've ever had way off the charts talk about planting soybeans in i think she said indiana but like if you go dove hunting here you'll notice that the doves are three weeks later coming back Um, and they're not there if you keep going the same week every year to go hunting it's because they're adapting to the climate there are, the things are happening if you just sort of like go, oh, I'm, that's different, but we're not wired for it. We're not wired to address changes that happen over a long period of time. Like, what was the weather like nine days ago? Mm. Nope. You have no idea what that was. So you, that's why we need the data. <laughs> yeah, David, and you've spent so much time along the coast, too. And, you know, Texas is the fossil fuel capital and look at where those refineries are so many of them are right there next to the water uh and even these big oil companies they know what may be coming here they're taking some you know making some preparations they're also diversifying into you know wind and solar you'll find them in renewables uh investing in that um but yet we don't see the same sort of thing going on with state government here in texas uh you know we talked about this before there's you couldn't find any discernible plans for dealing with a lot of this but the oil companies are making plans right they absolutely like they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to make sure that their billion dollar investments along the coast don't get flooded out permanently and so they have to take care of their own equipment down there and so you know they're just dealing with the same realities that that we all are except for their responsible for the realities that they're dealing with 
On the other hand, you have state government. So you have two things going on, I think. You have state government. There's not a single agency in the Abbott administration that has any policy related to climate change. We recently talked about insurance. So if the drought is worse and the flooding is worse and the fires are worse and the freezing is worse, the insurance claims are going to be worse. But the state insurance department has zero policy as it relates to climate change because politically it's not cool. Like that's not good state politics for them to have a policy for the Abbott administration to be talking about climate change. On the other hand, no other state in the country has as much wind as we have or has as much plans for future wind and solar and other technologies as Texas has. So this is a state that's motivated by money and business Mm. and energy. So on the one hand, you have, we're getting ready for this. We're going to make some money on this. On the other hand, you have a, Mm. a government that says it's not happening. We have no policy for it. I think there's a lot of dissonance there. I think at some point the politics of it are changing, will change. It's like at this point, let's not talk about it is sort of what the politics are Hmm. not to deny it but like let's just not talk about that because it's really it's not a good issue Hmm. david let me me go back a moment i didn't realize you were a dove hunter uh to start with but (laughs) but let's let's ask also uh about it because there are there are a lot of people that i talk to in in the in the political circles all the time and say Listen, we've seen the data, we've seen the numbers that Dr. Parmesan's put together and other scientists that UN has, has created and universities across the state with climatologists. But at the end of the day, we've also seen that, that, that uh, you know, this has happened continuously throughout time where the Earth's climate has gone up, it's gone down, it's changed, and, and whatever's alive at the time has to adapt. Um, when you when you hear those comments, what do you say as someone who's looked closer at this? A couple of things. I think a that's not an honest argument. Uh, it is true, like you said, the climate has changed over time, over millions of years. It has never changed this fast. So yeah, like it did. It could get warm. It could get warmer a degree and a half, but it would take a million years, and everything can adapt. We, we're doing it in decades, so we can't adapt. But I gotta say, I don't feel like and I'm, I'm curious if you've heard that lately i feel like the arg i feel like it's shifted to yeah maybe it's happening mm-hmm. you know but like let's not do anything about it <laughs> or you know the solutions are becoming the conversation mm-hmm. as opposed to whether it's really happening or not but i do feel like even in the last few years there's been movement away from that politically to just throw it under the bus i don't think you could find a politician right now who'd be like Climate has always changed, and we we don't know if man is involved with this. I think that I think that's kind of over. It's sort of like, okay, maybe it's happening, but you know, I don't want to spend the money on fixing that because I, that seems like a waste of money to me. Let's just turn, I, the, turn the air conditioner up. I've kind of gotten that sense too. It's almost like the COVID argument. Like, yeah, it's here, but you know what? We just need to learn to live with it and you know figure it out as we go. Uh, I want to ask you this, David, uh, on a, a, another report that you did a while back, a Verify report, uh, where you took somebody out. You know, you you took you're, you're taking people outside. You know, whatever feedback loop or bubble or just you know busy life that they're in and unable to keep up with the science and what's going on. And you, you, you take people out 
and you expose them and let them ask questions directly of scientists. You take them out in the field, you let them see for themselves what is actually happening and you expose this to them uh, or them to this and minds change. Like they, they come to the conclusion at the end, like, oh wow, like I had never seen it like this or thought of it like this. And she was talking about the same thing, uh, Professor Parmesan was, how if you get people alone, including politicians, they'll go, okay, yeah, I, I see what you're saying here. Yeah, I, I, it, it's pretty clear. Is it just that all of us need to take like this individual field day to go out and look? I don't think we have the budget for that. We have to take us from Whiteley's <laughs> budget to get everybody out there to do that. I, um, you know, it is, it is, it was really, it's very interesting to take somebody and let them experience things for themselves. As you know, we've done all kinds of topics, the death penalty, you know, I mean, just a million topics. And then no one ever changes their mind when we take them out. We usually try to bring someone who's got a little conflict around the idea. But, and this, and I, so I don't expect that they would, but it was impossible for him to not say like, <laughs> this is not happening. When you, when you, he, the science wasn't what did it, which is one of the problems. It wasn't talking to the professor Parmesans of the world, which he did do. It was going to Alaska. It was seeing that this glacier is a mile shorter than it was 50 years ago. It was walking on the permafrost that's thawing. So uh, it's experiential stuff that really does change people's opinion. The dove hunting, where are the doves? You know, it's not, look at this graph. You'd be like, well, who made the graph? And, you know, what's that scientist? And who's paying off that scientist? Like, you could do a million whatabouts. But when you go look at a shrinking glacier, it's really hard to what about that. Uh, I have one more for you. Uh, I, I know that you've got a couple more coming up. Uh, you're looking at methane. Uh, here in Texas. And also, uh, you know, we talk a lot about Tornado Alley. Uh, it strikes fear here because, you know, we've seen our share over the years and then some. Uh, but it looks like just like with insects and, you know, migration patterns and everything else that you'll find in these climate reports, Tornado Alley might be moving some, too, because of the, the shifts in weather. But yeah, that's that's like sort of some cutting edge research on Tornadoes. Tornadoes are really difficult to study compared to, say, a hurricane or crop patterns and things like that because you got to get to them. You don't know, like, they're difficult to predict where they are and take measurements of them. So they've always been sort of elusive. But some new research is plotting where the tornadoes are happening. And um, there's some indication that there is a shift in the right conditions that goes towards more towards the southeast. And they haven't been able to say, yes, that's climate change. But it follows all the other uh, fingerprints of climate change, more moisture, more dry air, warm air, um, and uh, other, you know, other, other patterns that we've seen. It looks like it, but they haven't quite gotten there. But I think it's really tantalizing and interesting to look at that because we're so terrified about tornadoes and to think that, like, our impact on the climate is impacting these ferocious tornado beasts is is kind of, you know, it makes your mind numb. Hmm. Yeah, I think about what happened in Tuscaloosa a few years back. That's probably been 10 years now when that uh, F5 touched down there near the university and just, you know, tore it to pieces. Growing up in the southeast, though, there were always tornadoes around. But the fact that the that tornado alley might be moving east is kind of fascinating. What I'm not clear about is why that would actually be happening. What, what's what's happening to to push them uh, farther east? Well, it's just that the it would be that 
So we, in, um, I guess, 100 years ago, the explorer John Wesley Powell comes out and there's like this line basically like on one side of it's dry and one side of it's moist. And so yeah. that, that line is like an important place where those two patterns come together. They call that the 100th meridian. And so over over time, scientists have found that the 100th meridian has actually like moved 100 miles. Toward, towards the east and so the line of like where the war where the dry and the moist meet is has moved um and so they're kind of like they're kind of correlating that change with hmm. the change they see in tornadoes and again more more warm moist air from coming up from the gulf because the ocean's warmer you know we we know that um and then you have warmer air that we have from the atmosphere hmm. warming the air so like the conditions are just getting a little bit better um, further to the east. Hmm. And hmm. and and last thing, the the methane one, because we keep hearing about carbon, carbon, carbon. Uh, you're doing something on methane as well, uh, because methane is a, a nasty gas uh, when it gets up there in the in the atmosphere, especially in big concentrations. It's accelerating this. Yeah, methane is um, basically natural gas. So what comes out of your stove at your house is methane, and in the Permian Basin, a couple things are going on. One is they don't have the capacity to get the methane to market for a large extent. So they just vent it out and it's coming out of the earth and it's just going into space or they burn it. Uh, and then that, that is, it sounds awful, but it's almost better than mm-hmm. venting it out. But you go around with these thermal imaging cameras and you can see these massive vents of methane just going into, into space. And so methane is way more potent than carbon dioxide but for a shorter period of time and it's become a, an important focus right now of getting a grip on climate change because if you can take care of that problem now you may make some impacts more quickly than taking out carbon which is going to be in the atmosphere for hundreds and hundreds of years hmm. but so but texas is a, is a is really a major source of methane and then you have these old they call them orphan wells which like nobody even owns anymore they're just orphans and if you go up with that same camera, you can see like there's methane leaking out of these. There's hundreds, there's thousands of these orphan wells around the, uh, the state and a lot of them are leaking. And so um, if they feel like they can get in and cap those, uh, then that could also make an impact. So there, Texas mm. is sort of, I think is, is like always ground zero for climate change. It's, you know, we have more oil and gas, we have more renewable energy, we have more natural disasters. We have, uh, everything is more here, we make more, we make this stuff here and the problem starts here and can I think it also can end here or begin to end here. Mm-hmm. We'll be looking for more of the reporting, David. It's always fascinating to watch your watch your stories, man. So keep keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Good to be yeah, here. We're, we're gonna have to have you on again. Uh, you know, maybe maybe we'll have to join you out when you're you're dove hunting uh, next time to, to get yeah. you, but we, we need to have you back. Br- bring your yeah, bring your rifle, Wheeler, all right. <laughs> <laughs> So Schechter, I agree with you there. I, I, I'm a big fan of Schechter's. I've always been a fan of Schechter's. And uh, he is one of those reporters who has really gone after a topic and really seized it and, and continued on with it. When you know, a lot of us, frankly, a lot of journalists will, will you know, kind of do a one and done or two and done and move on down the road to something else that interests them. So, yeah, I, I also like about Schechter that he, and he's like this in person too, he's one of these... Um, He's a very balanced guy, and he's one of these almost kind of devil's advocate types, you know, where you can go, 
uh, you know, man, the sky sure is blue today. And he's like, is it though? We should really look at it and see, you know what I mean? And so he doesn't go in with a lot of preconceived notions. And I think that you need something like someone like that when you're dealing with these issues that, as you said, I mean, they affect all of us and you can see changes happening around you, but it has become so political that it's like, you know, people are arguing about it as it's going on around them and, and the fight just keeps going. And, and, and so the solution isn't happening because people are just battling over, you know, the facts of it while it's happening around them. So I think that you need people like him who kind of go in with this real balanced approach, just kind of asking, is it about everything, you know, and, and how can we prove and, that and it Schechter is? And Schechter was talking about the methane stories working on uh, just finished up rather and the uh, tornado alley story too we'll have links to both of those stories if you want to see those specifically uh, in the synopsis here of the podcast but I think we have a link to the climate report too right. from the uh, for the UN and and you don't have to read the whole thing I mean this thing is like thousands of pages they have a summary which is really nice uh, for people like us to be able to get you know the key takeaways they've got some graphics in there it's really always well done. go to the executive summary always go you know Reagan would always say give me the one paragraph give me you know give me something quick I, I, give me the bullet I, I need something basic on this too so here, here's what I'm gonna be looking forward to moving forward from here this report comes out that Dr. Parmesan uh, authored, uh, the UN report comes out, I think the end of February. That came out, it got a lot of publicity. She's on this podcast. You have a journalist like David Schechter doing stories about it. But what happens politically with all this? Because as Dr. Parmesan said, politics is the answer here to actually enacting any change that, that might you know slow some of this down or at least help us cope with what's coming. We're going to see what happens later this year. The next UN Climate Summit is in Egypt. It's in November. Dr. Parmesan will be there. And that's when we'll also see world leaders there. And they'll talk about what their countries are or are not going to do. Of course, all the big Western countries are the ones that we're looking at, too, in addition to China, in addition to India, and places like that that obviously have a lot of output that, that impacts all this. And of course, in that same month, we'll be having the midterms and a big gubernatorial election here in Texas. Uh, and some of this, at least the fringes of this, uh, have already become a, an issue, you know, especially when you start talking about electric grid and, and, and what could happen with that going forward in the years ahead. So uh, this is uh, something that's going to keep coming up again and again. Uh, so good thing that we uh, spoke with the experts here today and that you sat and listened to them because you know how uh, it's all laid out right now and what the issues are and uh, we thank you as always uh, for being here with us this but, week and uh, so a, a toast to everybody with my exactly beer. there is some homework that we're going to leave you with here we need you to go out and, and find a beer selection for Wheeler because he's just off on you talk about the, the fringes and the extremes here he gets these fruity beers he gets these food beers he's drinking a s'mores and, beer. and these chocolatey marshmallowy beers uh, today I thought you I, I thought your homework that's, to people was going to be to go out and find where the real Texas that's chocolate sacrilege. is I mean this is a, I bet there's a lot I mean, of it actually on. all right hey thanks for listening as always we appreciate it and we will see you next week <laughs>